All right, you can take your Bibles and turn them with me to James chapter 5. James 5, and if you're using one of the uh, black Bibles that are scattered under the chairs throughout the sanctuary, you can go to page 1013. 1013. Those Bibles, by the way, are available for you to either borrow or have if you don't own one. Feel free to take advantage of that. James chapter 5. Uh, when I was a kid, I remember these large brown envelopes uh, coming in the mail that looked like checks for very large amounts of money, like $10 million. And my hopes would just rise. And I get really excited. This is it. We've struck it rich. This would solve so many of our problems, not to mention toys galore for me. Every action figure, every Star Wars action figure that I could own could be mine, not to mention a pile of Atari games. Yes, I said Atari. Some of you don't even know what that is. If you do know, congratulations, you're as old as I am. But uh, upon further examination in the envelope, I realized with great sadness that it did not say you had won $10 million, but you may have won $10 million. Just fill out this form, mail it back, we'll put it in this very large sweepstakes with millions of other people. You have virtually no chance of winning, and my hopes were dashed multiple times by the publishing clearinghouse sweepstakes. Uh, but I always held out hope that maybe next time it would be us. And I would experience what I saw in the commercials where you'd have a guy kind of show up at the house with a big old check to an unsuspecting winner and the, they would open the door and there's hooting and howling and crying and there's exceedingly great joy. Why? Because they believed that the reception of that check would change their lives forever and for the better. Uh, from an early age, we are trained to, to think in such a way where we elevate money and material possessions to the ultimate, from the lottery to Powerball, to commercials that tell us if only we just had this awesome new car or this incredible new gadget, that that would bring so much more happiness and fulfillment in our lives. So much of American culture cultivates uh, a craving in us, and we, wanted to, and we desire more and more, and we begin to believe these messages that happiness and security are bound up in riches and possessions. And when riches are exalted in our hearts, it breeds envy and covetousness. I don't know about you, but I've had moments, little flashes in my heart and mind, not very often, but, but when they come, I kill those thoughts quickly because they're dangerous. Uh, but there have been moments on my worst days where I've experienced, I experienced envy towards the rich and the powerful, and I feel frustration. Uh, that the rich and powerful uh, live lives of ease and comfort and security, and, and, and many of them are doing this while at the same time ignoring God and mocking God and breaking His commandments, celebrating the breaking of His, of His commandments, mistreating others, all the while enjoying their riches, while on the other hand, you've got people who are, are striving to love the Lord their God with all their heart and love their neighbors as themselves, and yet they face great hardships, barely making ends meet. And of course, we know that many believers around the world are severely oppressed and persecuted for their faith by the rich and by the powerful. And it seems injustice reigns and the world is upside down when often those who defy God are on top and God's people are on the bottom being crushed. Now, after all of that, you may want to fire me as your pastor because none of you have ever had any thoughts like that. 
any frustrations like that. And so, so some of you may be shocked and scandalized that those thoughts sometimes would pop into my mind. But if you can identify with me, know that we are actually in good company. There is a man in the Bible, a, a worship leader named Asaph, who wrote Psalm 73. Maybe keep your finger in James and flip over to Psalm 73. I probably should have had you do this for starters. Psalm, 70, Psalm is easy to find if you don't know your Bible well, because it's like right in the middle uh, of the Bible. Easy to find. Now, Asaph um, would have been someone that the community of Israel would have looked up to as a man of God. And, and yet, one of the worship songs that Asaph writes for the people is this psalm, Psalm 73. I don't know if you've ever read Psalm 73, but there's some pretty raw stuff in there, and it opens up with a confession. I just wanted you to see this with your own eyes. This is why I wanted you to turn there. It opens up this way. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Okay, that, that sounds good. That's a nice little worship song, and we can kind of sing that. But then he proceeds. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps... My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So what do you think? Maybe we should find some worship songs like that, add that into rotation on Sunday morning so we can all sing about our envy of the prosperity of the wicked. That would shock some people, especially visitors and newcomers. What kind of place is this? But, but here's the thing. Psalm 73 is not just a personal Confession. Uh, this isn't just merely therapy for Asaph. It's a corporate worship song, and it's meant to be sung collectively by God's people. This is a corporate confession as Asaph recognizes something that many of us feel but are actually afraid to admit. And this temptation and this discouragement are so common that, that it worked, the, the sentiments worked its way under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit into the hymnal of Israel. We'll come back to Asaph later, so you may want to actually keep your finger now in Psalm and turn back to James. And the underlying theme in this sermon series through the book of James is the notion that faith works. James wants to show us that genuine faith in God actually changes how we live our lives in so many different ways, how we live our lives in the midst of trials, how we treat one another, faith changes how we speak to one another, and even as we saw last week, faith changes um, how we make our plans for the future. And now, as we get into chapter 5, James shows us how faith changes our thinking about money and possessions. He's going to help us uh, think about this area in a way that's going to guard us from envy and also at the same time give us hope and encouragement as we consider the mistreatment of God's people at the hands of the evil rich and evil powerful. Uh, so let's get to work in God's Word together. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading and the hearing of the precious and perfect words of our God. We're in James chapter 5 and we'll read the first six verses. The Holy Spirit says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days." Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. 
And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a tough word. And I pray that you would, by the Spirit, open our eyes so that we may see and open our ears so that we may hear the message that your Spirit has for this church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, James is not a seeker-sensitive preacher, is he? He really isn't. This is, this is some hard-hitting stuff. Uh, what's more, James is doing something that at first seems to be a bit odd, because he has been writing to believing Christian congregations, and all of a sudden, he breaks out in this word against unwealthy believers who don't appear to be in these congregations at all, but who instead are taking advantage of, mistreating, abusing, and oppressing poor believers who are in these congregations, which, which raises the question, why would James write a word of judgment against people who wouldn't even read the letter? What good is a word of judgment on unbelievers when it's falling on the ears of a believing congregation? And I would submit to you that what James is doing here is that he's speaking in the way that the Old Testament prophets sometimes spoke, where they would pronounce a a word of judgment on the wicked. But the purpose of the word was to instruct and to encourage God's people. We see this, for example, in Ezekiel 29. You don't have to turn there, but maybe later this week you can check it out. But in Ezekiel 29, you have the prophet speaking a word of judgment from God against Egypt and her king, Pharaoh. But the audience receiving this prophetic word isn't Pharaoh. It's the people of God. It's the Jews who are in exile in Babylon who are actually quite far away from Egypt. So what's the point? The point is that a word of judgment against this evil king will actually bring God's people comfort as they learn from this word that that even though it seems like Pharaoh is winning, even though it seems like he is successfully spurning God and getting away with his wickedness, that God is not blind to Pharaoh's activities and justice will come. He will bring this evil king down. I think the same type of prophetic announcement is happening right here in James chapter 5. We have a word of judgment concerning these wicked rich people, but the word is not delivered specifically to the wicked, wicked rich, but to the poor Christians who are living under their oppression. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, writes that James is doing this so that his audience, upon hearing of the miserable end of the rich, might not envy their fortune... And also that knowing that God would be the avenger of the wrongs they suffered, they might with a calm and resigned mind bear them. So this is a word to help God's people. And it's important to realize as we dig into these first few verses of chapter 5 that James is not saying that having wealth or being rich is a sin. Be very careful with that. Some people actually go to that conclusion There's actually two extremes. There there, there are some people that say that being poor is a sin, and others that say that being rich is a sin. Uh, Both of those things are unbiblical. They over-spiritualize both poverty and riches. Uh, James here is not condemning money. Instead, the sins that James is describing in this chapter 
arise from wrong ways of relating to money. And as we consider what James has to say, we're going to discover why we shouldn't envy the ungodly who are rich and powerful, and we're going to see why believers can have hope. And at the same time, we're going to, I hope, see the spiritual pitfalls of wealth and that it'll serve a warning to our own hearts in regards to our relationship with our own money and possessions. And so James is, is going to teach us now three wrong ways to relate to money. And the, and the first wrong way has to do with placing a false hope in money, placing a false hope in money. Um, he says in verse 1 again, "'Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days.'" That, y'all, that is horrifying language. That is scary stuff. He says, "'Come now, you rich, and weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you.'" What's James talking about? He's talking about judgment from God. He's talking about hell. And that hell is so certain for them that if they fully knew and if they fully understood the reality of what was coming, they would start weeping and howling in fear right now. Now, why? What's what's the problem? Why are they going to be judged? Because they have a lot of money? Let me give you a pop quiz. It's true or false. True or false. Money is the root of all evil. Oh, I serve a biblically literate congregation. Now, now, if some of you actually accidentally said true, don't, don't feel bad about that. That's a, that's a trick question. We fall into that, and, and probably all of us have made that mistake at, at one time or, or another. Yeah, one of my kids the other day uh, turned around and said, money is the root of all evil. And so like a, a, a gospel police officer, I turned on the lights and the sirens and, and just kind of swooped right in there and said, no, 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 that, that's actually not quite right. So this is what happens when you live with a preacher. So that's not quite right. Uh, money is not the root of all evil. What, what, is the, what does the Scripture say? Scripture says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So the issue is not whether or not you have a lot of money. The issue is, as with everything else in life, where's your heart? And what does your heart really love? And a heart that loves money, Scripture says, will have all kinds of evil attitudes and do all kinds of evil things to get more of the money that they love. I remember once telling somebody about the gospel, and this person actually did not object, overtly at least, to the person of Jesus. Uh, Really, the issue was that this person loved money, more than uh, Jesus. Uh, They actually just flat out and admitted that. That was the driving factor in this person's life, and it led this individual away from Jesus and into an immoral lifestyle in the pursuit of more money. Now, the reason why we love money is we love the things that we think money will secure for us. It's not that we just have a thing for little thin pieces of paper with, you know, semi-good art on them. It's what we think money is going to do for us that we, we love so much. We, we feel like money can buy us all of the comfort we crave, all of the security that we need, all of the happiness that we desire, and we, we all can relate to this. We all can relate to the feelings that our lives would be a little bit better if we just had a little bit more of it. And if we're not careful, we'll begin to see money as the solution to everything. 
and money will move to the center of our lives. And if money is moving to the center, then what is being pushed out of the center? You only have one thing at the center of your heart at one time. So if money's coming in, something else is being pushed out. Jesus puts it this way, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's very interesting. Jesus there depicts money not as a thing, but as a God, as a rival God, as something that can capture your affections and secure your devotions and compel you into service, because whatever's at the chief of your affections... Whatever you treasure the most is the thing you will serve. Where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be. And it is that thing that you treasure that you will invest all of your energy and time and emotions into. That's the thing that's going to control your life. Whatever you bank all of your hopes in life, or all of your hopes for in life and security and satisfaction, whatever you, whatever you choose to bank your hopes for all of those things, and that turns out to be your God. And these rich people that James is pronouncing this word of judgment against, they love money and they love material possessions more than they love God. We see that in the hoarding of their wealth. James says in verse 3 that you have laid up treasure. In other words, you are piling up more and more stuff because that's what you're trusting in for life. Now, in the first century world of James, there were, um, there were three areas in particular that were sources and signs of wealth. One of those areas was food, in particular harvested grain. Uh, the other was clothing, and the third was precious metals. Is it not interesting that James targets all three here? He says that the food that you have piled up has rotted. Your, your fancy clothes are riddled with moth holes, and your gold and your silver have corroded. Now, We know that food can rot, and we know that clothes can deteriorate. But what makes James's denunciation interesting is that gold actually doesn't corrode. But James nevertheless speaks of it as something that is rusting away. In fact, in the original language, uh, uh, James uses the Greek perfect tense to describe the rotting and the deterioration and the corrosion, uh, and that verb tense describes an existing state. In other words, James is asserting that all of their possessions have already deteriorated and they sit there ruined. Now, that's striking language because these poor, oppressed Christians, upon hearing James's condemnation of the wicked, all they had to do was just go outside their churches and and they could see the rich oppressors walking around in fine clothes and with sparkling jewelry, eating the best of foods, and then they could hear the clink of gold coins in their money bags. Nothing looks rotted. Nothing looks tattered. Nothing looks corroded. These rich, powerful people are doing just fine. They're enjoying life. They're, they're living at ease and comfort and security. They're enjoying the stuff that they have piled up for themselves. And James, though, is clearly speaking in a metaphorical and prophetic kind of way. The, the food that they have hoarded the food that they should have generously shared with those in need, uh, that should be seen as already rotted. Uh, Their clothes should be seen as rags exposing their spiritual bankruptcy. And that shiny gold, those piles of money that they're enjoying right now, are actually pointing to an eschatological end-time judgment. He says, 
you might as well just consider that gold as corroded and useless because it will be totally worthless to you when you stand before God. It will not help you. It will, in fact, serve as evidence of your guilt. And that guilt is even more heightened because James says they are laying up treasures in the last days. People sometimes ask me, Deemer, Deemer, do you you think we're living in the last days? And I always say, yes, we've been in the last days for the past 2,000 years. In the past, God spoke through the prophets in various ways, Hebrews chapter 1, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The revelation of Christ through the gospel marked the beginning of the last days, and we are in the final epic of history before the return of Christ and the final judgment. And James' point here is that you rich people are laying up treasure now? Right? Really? As we approach the end of the age, Christ's return could happen at any time. It's the 11th hour on God's clock. The full expression of the eternal kingdom is coming. And instead of preparing for that, you're putting your hopes and focusing your energy on these temporary transient things. Even the things that seem strong and permanent, like like your gold, that won't last. The thing that we say doesn't corrode, count it as corroded. Count it as worthless. The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, in other words, prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, now, here Paul is talking about rich Christians. He, he, he's, writing to believe, he's writing to Timothy, who is a pastor overseeing a church, and some in this church are wealthy. And Paul writes this because he knows that any of us, whether a believer or an unbeliever, any of us can fall into this trap of a false hope in money. You don't have to be an unbeliever, and you don't have to be a millionaire. Uh, instead, whether you're rich or poor, it's a, uh, the, the problem is a, a spirit and an attitude that can capture any of our hearts. It is so easy for you and I to think, well, if I only had a little bit more, If I could only make a little bit more, if I could only get a financial break, that will give me more peace, that'll give me more happiness, that'll give me more security and satisfaction. And reading about the false hope these rich people in James 5 have should cause us not to self-righteously thank God that we aren't like them, but it should cause us to examine ourselves and ask ourselves the hard questions like, what is my heart set on? Where is my real hope and confidence in? Is it in the uncertainty of riches, or is it in God? So the first problem that we see uh, that we can have with money is placing a false hope in money. Uh, The second issue is obtaining money through fraudulent gain, shady means. Uh, Verse 4, James says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. In the first century Roman Empire, there were two main classes, the few who were rich and the many who were poor. 
Outside of the occasional exceptions, there was virtually no middle class. That's hard for us to relate to today. Um, Now, the rich who owned land, they needed people to work the land, and so they would hire poor day laborers to work their fields, and he was supposed to pay them wages at the end of the day. And this was very important to these laborers because they lived hand to mouth. They're barely able to feed their families day by day. And if you think about it, this puts the rich in a position of extreme power and control. That's what wealth does in every age and every culture. It provides lots of power, and power combined with a selfish, sinful heart that is already corrupt has a tendency then to bring about further corruption. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? And so the the wealthy landowner could make the employee's life absolutely miserable. You know, I had a boss once that just made life so hard for me. It's not Todd. I used to work for Pure Fun. It's not Todd. <laughs> but it was another guy at another place, and, uh, and I absolutely dreaded going to work in the morning to deal with this guy. It, 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 was, it was horrible. I mean, like, people were like, I remember seeing other coworkers. they were like crying in their cubicles because this guy was so, so bad. But in hindsight, I, I suppose it wasn't that bad because no matter how I was treated, at least I got paid like clockwork every two weeks. But here, James describes some very insidious bosses. Uh, if, the, if the wealthy landowner holds back wages, only pays a portion of what they owe or, or doesn't pay them on time or maybe doesn't pay them at all, Well, just one day of lost wages could be disastrous for these poor farm laborers. It could literally mean life or death, so they were totally at the mercy of their bosses. And the rich here love their money so much that they're willing to cheat and oppress, be shady, uh, and take advantage of their employees so that they could acquire more. And so the rich got richer and the poor got poor. And 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 the poor people had no recourse If they refuse to work, they starve. Now, God has always had a concern that employers treat their hired workers fairly and judiciously because God is a God of justice. God never cheats. God's always generous. In fact, He has a special favor, uh, a special heart for the poor and needy. He loves to rescue. He loves to show favor uh, on those who in the world's eyes are lowly and insignificant. We see the heart of of God in the very law that He gave to Israel. So, for example, in uh, Leviticus 19, God says, "'You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning.'" Notice Notice that God equates the holding back of fair wages, the deliberate delay of paying what you owe. He equates that with robbery. God sees this as something very, very seriously. Now, now a few of you here do run businesses, and so you have people working for you, so I think the application for you should be fairly obvious. But many of us don't run businesses. But nevertheless, I think there are some principles here that we can apply. For example, if a contractor comes to our house... Uh, Do we pay them what we owe as quickly as possible, or do we let them do the work in our home and then we enjoy the benefits of that work and and we put off paying them as long as we can, just kind of kicking the the can down the road, not thinking that that contractor who's come to your house, he had to purchase the materials, he had to pay his own men, he had to to put in all of his time, all of his own pocket energy, and, and he's relying on us for a living. And we just delay paying them because we want to hold on to that money as long as possible. 
one teacher said, is, is our biggest problem here in the area of a sin of omission, of not thinking about those who work for us, of not caring for them adequately, the day laborers, the people who clean our homes and keep our yards? Are, are we not adequately concerned for those who are less advantaged? Listen, God sees and God cares about those sorts of things, and so should we as his representatives. It, it makes me sad when I hear testimonies from people who say, yeah, I did business with such and such a person, and they said that they were a Christian. Y'all probably heard stories like this before. You probably know what's coming. They said they were a Christian. They had a little bumper sticker with a little fishy symbol on the back of their, their, their car or, or in, hanging up in their business, and they ripped me off. They, they lied. They took advantage of me. May that never be said of us. If, if you are stingy and shading, shady in your monetary dealings, please rip that bumper sticker off of your car and don't say that you belong to the family of God. May we as God's people be the very best, most honest, most generous people for anybody to do business with. Because if you're not, we misrepresent God and God sees it. Here's another one from the law of God. This is in Deuteronomy. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. That sounds a lot like what James is saying here in, in, uh, in verse 4 of chapter 5. I think James probably has this verse in mind. But in James's picture, it's not just the day laborer that is crying out for justice. Look what he says. He says, the very wages of the laborers which you kept by, back by fraud are crying out against you. That's interesting. In other words, just like that corroding money in verse 3 stands as evidence against the evil rich person, James says the money that they have kept held back... Uh, that they have withheld from their employees, that money is crying out also. It's serving as evidence of their guilt. James has personified this money. It's actually kind of creepy when you think about it. Imagine the money in your pockets screaming about you being guilty of ill-gotten gains. And the more you try to push that money in, in your pockets and silence that and silence your, your conscience, the louder the money shrieks at you, exposing you of your guilt. And yet they don't care. And in verse 6, James says, You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. Not literally, but uh, it's not literal murder, or else they have no one working in their fields. Uh, but in this, in this wicked system, the wealthy landowners, they controlled the courts. And the poor couldn't oppose them because the system was rigged. It was rigged in favor of the rich and powerful. And therefore, the poor are totally helpless, uh, deprived of a living, deprived of a way to get their daily bread, and so metaphorically, they are being murdered by the rich. And why? Well, that leads to my final observation. So, so the first mistake here, the first wrong way to relate to money is placing a false hope in money. The second is obtaining wealth through fraudulent gain. But then the third way is seeing money as a means of self-indulgence. Look at verse 5. James says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. That word luxury could literally be translated as delicately. Delicately. You have lived delicately. Uh, the idea is that these rich people have poured their money into pampering themselves, uh, making themselves as comfortable as possible, completely indulging themselves. While they should be generously paying their starving day laborers, they pocket the money and use it to further their own ends of fulfilling every self-indulgent desire and craving they had. 
So their whole life is self-focused. They couldn't care less about anybody else because the love of money really is the root of a root of all kinds of evil. And if you allow that love, that craving for money, that craving for riches, that craving for, for possessions, if you allow that to run rampant in your heart, it's going to change you into something really ugly. It'll warp you into a self-indulgent beast. Indeed, James even describes the people here in beastly terms, doesn't he? He says in verse 5, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. That's interesting language. You know, one of the things I appreciate about where I live is that my route to church takes me past some cow pastures, and I love that. It's, it's, It's just a very peaceful, beautiful scene looking at all these cows, and, and they just seem to have a great life, don't they? Don't cows seem to have an awesome life? Maybe, maybe you think I'm crazy, but I think they do. They're just lounging around. They're just soaking up the sun. All their needs met. Not a care in the world. Every time I see them, they're eating. That sounds like a great life. They're just chomping on food, always chomping on food, getting fatter and fatter. Yeah, I guess that's true to life also. And loving it, having a great old time. But what's really going on? Do we have just altruistic, you know, cow owners? Are these pets? Why are the cows being fattened up? The fattening is a prelude to a very brutal and violent ending. I had a delicious hamburger last night. It was really, really good. It was really, really good. And I realized that that hamburger used to be a very fat and contented cow who thought that life was just terrific. Everything was going great. But in their stupid ignorance, the filling of their bellies was just preparing it for a swift and bloody end. James says, that's exactly what is happening with you rich, self-indulgent people. You think life is great as you pamper yourself, enjoying the good life. You think you got it made. You ignore the cries of the laborers you are grinding into the dust. But, but every time you indulge yourselves, every bit of money you spend that should have gone to others, every fine piece of clothing you wear that, that should have been given to the cold and the needy, every delicious meal you enjoy, and every bit of self-indulgence you experience is just setting yourself up for the slaughter, for a brutal ending. You think that you're getting away with everything and that you'll never be called to account. And yet James says, while you are ignoring the cries of your workers, there is one who hears. Look at the end of verse 4. He says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts. That's an interesting title. When we think of the word host, we tend to think of it in kind of benign terms, like a host of a party or, or a game show host or something like that. But Lord of hosts means Lord of armies, a Lord of the angelic warriors of heaven, the host of heaven. Uh, there is a threat in, embedded in that title, a threat to the wicked, but an encouragement to the godly. The warrior God is not deaf to the abuse of his people, and a day will come where he will arise in judgment to vindicate his own, coming with a sword of judgment, and there will be great slaughter. And James's message is that they won't get away with what they're doing to you. They won't. 
God sees, God knows, God is not deaf to your cries, God will respond. Now, for God's people who were first reading this letter, such a dreadful and terrifying passage should have driven out the seeds of envy in their hearts. Those, those rich guys who seem like they are winning and on top, it's all an illusion. Their riches have rotted. Their clothes have holes. Their gold is corroded and worthless, and they are being fattened for the slaughter. So why in the world would I envy such people when I know the truth? That was the conclusion that Asaph eventually came to. Remember Asaph? We'll come back around to him now. We started with him in the beginning. Back to Psalm 73. You can turn there again. You should read the whole chapter this week, Psalm 73. That's that's your homework. It's pretty depressing at first because he goes on and on about how things are just going great for the wicked. They got plenty of food. Their bodies are fat. By the way, fat there was like a compliment. It wasn't like, you know... It's like they're well taken care of, they're doing good, they get richer and richer, Uh, they don't have any problems, They, they keep doing horrible things, and they're getting away with it. And I, on the other hand, I'm trying to follow God, I'm trying to do the right thing, I'm trying to have integrity, and my life is horrible. He sounds like a lot of us. We've said things like that before, probably. But eventually, he climbs out of his depression, and he turns a corner, And he says this in verse 16. Look at verse 16. He says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. In other words, I I went to worship God. Then I discerned their end. I discerned their end. He says, I realized that destruction is their destiny. But more than that, he begins to realize that all along, he himself possessed the greatest treasure. You see, Asaph, as you're following the psalm, you can see he's starting to come to his senses. His vision now is getting clearer. He thought that all those wicked people were the rich ones, but he turns around and he says this in verse 25. Look at it. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. In other words, Asaph is saying there is absolutely nothing this world has to offer that even compares to you. It's no contest. He suddenly realizes not only how bad the wicked have it, but how incredibly good he has it. Not because all of a sudden his present hardships are gone. They're still there. But, because it's dawned on him that in spite of how things, how bad things seem right now, he, he has come into possession of the greatest treasure that anybody could possess, namely God himself. Look at verse 26. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My portion I love that, my portion. That, that's, that's inheritance language. When we think of an inheritance, what do we think of? We think of riches. Riches that we've come into possession of. Asaph sees this now, and it makes all of the difference in the world. And James, like Asaph, wants God's people to see the reality with the eyes of faith. In a a world where injustice is rampant, where it seems like those who hate God and use and abuse others are winning and are on top, we need the spiritual 
sight and the discernment to perceive that the way things seem with the natural eye does not tell the whole story. You know, back in chapter 1, James hints at this. In James chapter 1, he he says, um, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And in the next chapter, in chapter 2, verse 5, he he reminds us, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? doesn't mean that all of God's people are poor, but it does mean that in the wisdom and good pleasure of God, He has deemed it good to pour out the majority of His saving favor on those who, according to the world's standards, are weak and poor and lowly and insignificant. It is these, James says, who will be heirs of the kingdom, a kingdom that is here even now, but will be fully manifested when King Jesus returns to rule and reign. And on on that day, on that day, there will be a great reversal. The power players of this present age, those who seem to be on top, the ungodly kings and presidents and rulers and CEOs, the movers and shakers, the ones who seem so important, will one day be brought low in judgment as God calls them to account. But those who are poor in this world, James says, who are rich in faith, will rule and reign the whole cosmos with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why James says, let the lowly one boast in his exaltation, in his status in Christ. And as we boast in that exaltation, we do not boast in ourselves as if we had anything to do with our exaltation. That's a joke. We will instead boast in the one who has exalted us. May we never forget may we never forget that the slaughter that James pronounced upon the wicked rich was a slaughter that apart from the grace of Christ would have come to us as well. Rich or poor, small or great, we all have rebelled against him. We all have spurned him because we all sought treasure and life and satisfaction outside of him. That's what sin is. Every time you live in a way that treasures something else more than God, it's sin. And we all have chased gods that we thought were better than Christ's. And the Scripture says that we are no better than the people that James condemns here in chapter 5 because we all deserve the judgment of God. But the good news is that there is grace for the humble. Isn't that what James said in chapter 4? He opposes the proud. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. A grace from our Lord Jesus, the one who, though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Jesus left the riches of heaven and came to earth And the slaughter that we deserved, he received so that we might live, so that we might become rich. Not rich in the trinkets of this world, but rich in Christ, who has been raised from the dead and who proves to be a treasure superior over anything else that anyone else could ever possess. And so where once like Asaph, we mourned over our situation we now, like Asaph, rejoice upon realizing the true, the true riches that we possess 
and we sing with Asaph, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So don't bank your hopes on the trinkets of the kingdom of this world. Bank your hopes on Christ and His kingdom, which is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, that in his joy he goes and sells, then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Which means that if you have everything, but you don't have Jesus, you are dreadfully bankrupt. And if you have nothing else, but you have Jesus, you have infinite riches. May God give us eyes to see how rich a treasure we possess. Let's pray.